Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're doing what we do every week, which is celebrating the most unique bond any beings can possibly share. <laughs> I'm talking, of course, about friendship, but friendship wetter than what I'm used to in Excalibur number 117. <laughs> Excalibur number 117 amendments screwed up my own joke, featuring part two of Kurt Wagner's epic showdown with his iconic arch nemesis, the Sidri. Excalibur number 117 was originally published in February 1998 and the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Mel Ruby on pencils, Rob Hunter on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkings and Kiff Scholl on letters, and Kelly Corvess and Jason White on editing. Welcome to the ninth final episode of our weekly Excala Chats. But who are we? I am, of course, Dr. Anna Papard, surveyor of sexy, gendery stuff in comics and pop culture, some of the time teacher and all of the time writer, all around everywhere, including at Sequential Scholars, where Andrew and I are probably talking about one Carol Danvers and maybe some Monica too, right around the time this episode drops. I also remain Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I will allow the pod to ship my client with one Piotr Rasputin for the next hour and change, um, but only the next hour and change purely because Kurt deserves better. Um, but moving on, I am joined as always by <laughs> Math. Are you feeling friendly this week? I'm Everyone feeling... deserves better than God or Rasputin. Let's just make that clear. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling thankful. It's Thanksgiving as we record. It's uh, or not. It's not Thanksgiving as we record, but I'm on break. I am moments away or actually, I guess about a day away, given of defrosting from starting my Thanksgiving turkey prep, which is, you know, a full day's worth of cooking for me. Um, <laughs> Because I like to now. This will be the first time I've used my brand new smoker. I, I if you listen to my other show, um, you might know that I'm a barbecue enthusiast to the point where I have five separate barbecue grills oh, on my back porch. We've discussed um, <laughs> this on this pod, also. We've definitely yeah, yeah. So, this. so okay. So, so I have, so I have one that I've only used one time before as a as a trial run for my upright smoker that I bought specifically so that I'd be able to cook a turkey in it this year. So I'm very much looking forward to that. So that's what I'm doing. But, uh, you know, when, when, when I'm not being a, you know, amateur barbecue cook, <laughs> for Thanksgiving, I guess. I'm a assistant teaching professor of literature and cultural studies at the University of Pittsburgh in the Digital Narrative and Interactive Design program. And I co-host another show called The Box Popcast. I, I'm editing a book about Batman and, and I'm doing this show, but I'm on break. It's, 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 it's Thanksgiving break. This is the first time I've ever had like a whole week off for Thanksgiving, I believe literally in my entire life. Um, my, <laughs> my current university has the entire week of Thanksgiving off. Well, it's not the first time. Last year would have been the first time when i first started working there but like everywhere i've ever worked before you get like that thursday off and that friday and i know that's weird because this is a canadian show so you guys had thanksgiving literally like <laughs> six weeks ago so but
but for me, this is exciting. <laughs> well, I am experiencing American Thanksgiving this year. I'm going down to Jersey. So, and then I, every time I mention this to fellow Canadians, they're like, oh, are they going to have all those like weird American Thanksgiving foods? And I don't know what people mean by weird. Like one person what? asked me about like jellied salads. And I was like, I don't know where you're uh, getting this oh, info. No. Wow. But... Oh, that's really, you guys are white people. Oh, yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I will not have that sort of thing. I will have a turkey. There will be cranberry sauce, which I don't think is that weird. It's just you take some cranberries and you mash them up and they become a, a sauce. I'll have some stuffing. Um, I will make some, some zucchini bread. There'll be some you know, greens. Oh, of I some like kind. zucchini bread. Yeah, I mean, I don't think our, I don't think anything that I prepare is all that weird. But yes, some people do have have weird foods. Um, I just I, I forget that's a thing because even though my in law, I'm I'm in an interracial marriage, so my my in laws are white, but they tend to not have anything terribly weird. I mean, the weirdest thing on their on their Thanksgiving menu is Brussels sprouts, which my wife makes, which is not actually weird. I just don't like Brussels sprouts. So. <laughs> Sacrilege. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't think it's going to be very quote unquote weird. And, you know, the families involved are German and Ukrainian. I don't know how that affects things, but we'll, yeah. we'll see how it goes. My first American Thanksgiving. Let us know how, I, I'm, I'm, now I'm super curious. And I'll know. let you know. I'll keep you posted. I'll keep you all posted. Um, Andrew, well, I'm surprised that the runaway success of the Claremont Run book has not made you too famous to talk to us. I am very <laughs> grateful that that is or isn't the case. Um, but how are you feeling this week? I'd like to point out that with the book, I've been going on a whole bunch of like podcasts and stuff and literally every podcast with the possible exception of two the host at the end has said oh yeah we had anna or mav on last week please say hi to them <laughs> i'm like fine <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> i've been passing off some of my podcasts to you andrew so that i didn't have to do them <laughs> I've, I've been doing relatively few for me lately I say, as I'm recording, literally one tomorrow, and one, and I did one yesterday. But, yeah, exactly. But, but relatively few for me. But how are you doing, Andrew? Are you good? Uh, yep. I'm Dr. J. Andrew Germain of St. Jerome's University and sequential scholars and author of The Claremont Run, Subverting Gender in the X-Men. Best-selling book, The Claremont Run, Subverting Gender in the X-Men. <laughs> you know what's weird? For you? Can, I, can I do a little behind-the-scenes thing? So we record our episodes out of order sometimes. So which this, this episode, I believe we've recorded two or three episodes past this episode by That's the time true. we recorded this episode. So it's going to be very bizarre listening to it back and listening to the, <laughs> you know, as Andrew's book like gets sold out, but then comes back in stock, but they're going to be in the wrong order for the listener. And I'm just like really <laughs> going to be fascinated <laughs> with what that experience is like. Like it's made sense to us in real time, but but through the magic of podcast time travel, people are going to be like, wait, can I buy the book or not? Yeah, we're, yeah. we're making the availability of your book very confusing by recording out of order, but I'm confident that people will be able to use Google to obtain it. I think you can still they get should. it from the yeah. press. Yeah, yeah <laughs> the ebook the e is there. The press is sold out, but they still have the ebook. Well, it's going to get a paperback at some point, I'm sure, as well. But anyway, That'd we will cool. move on and, and introduce our fabulous guest and get to discussing this comic because there is stuff to talk about and I'm eager to get to it. So joining this week's journey into the damp depths of unique bonds is a super rad fellow scholar and first-time guest who we're so gratified to have with us. The pod is jubilant to welcome Dr. Lee Easton. Hello, Lee. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity to come and chat about uh, comics. I never decline an opportunity, so thank you so Aww. much. We're really looking forward to it. I want to get into your comics origin story, but we'll do your bio first and come right back to that. Dr. Lee Easton is a professor of English literature and current president of the Faculty Association at Mount Royal University in Calgary, Alberta. His research includes work in comic studies, focusing on representation and identity in comics. Among his publications, he is the co-author with award-winning poet and scholar Richard Harrison of Secret Identity Reader, essays on sex, death, and the superhero, published by Woolsack and Wynn in 2010. And I do recommend that book to everybody. I'll be making a couple of references to it throughout the pod. So, Lee, we were mentioning before we recorded that I met you in person the first time at the same Pop Culture Association conference where I met Mav for the first time, but it's been a while since we chatted, and we have never had the important conversation about your comics origin story. So we'll start there. Have you been a lifelong comics reader? Lee, tell us about it. Thank you. Yeah, I have been. I was, you know what, I was reflecting on um, exactly when I first encountered superhero comics. And it's 
it's actually quite vivid in my mind. I had always been reading, you know, Disney and Gold Key comics when I was, you know, three, four or five years old. My mother gave them to me uh, when uh, she wanted me to be occupied when she was doing things around the house. But it was when my father brought me, and I, I looked it up to be certain, I remember the cover. It was World's Finest number 155. And it's the one where Nightman deals Batman a stunning blow and says that Batman is gone and now Robin works for him. And I just remember being just totally captivated by that comic. And not that I want to super reach, uh, date myself, but it was around the time of the Batman series that was uh, the original Batman series back in the late 60s. And so it just tied in with my whole fascination with uh, Batman and Robin and, you know, that whole sort of uh, superhero piece. After that, I think I was, I, I sort of stumbled on Marvel Comics and I remember too, I remember it was the Avengers somewhere in the 40s, sort of 44 or something like that, around the time the Red Guardian had been introduced. And um, also Thor, and I think that was Thor 152. Um, he was battling Ulick, um, for those of you who follow um, the Asgard uh, folks. And again, I was just really super interested in these characters that are just, you know, so extraordinary and they're adventures and and so i guess i've been reading you know really since then became an avid collector um i think i, I may have spoken about collecting and, and my interest in that and where that took me and then you know ultimately teaching comics way back when it was not always the thing to do. So I was teaching at Sheridan College in Ontario. I taught a course called Comics and Society that was, as you might imagine, very popular among the animators and illustrators who oh, yeah. uh, were, at Sher- yeah, were at Sheridan. And yeah, so I guess that's my origin story. It really goes back to, you know, the, the getting that first comic from my father. And I think in a lot of ways, my relationship with my father has been defined by my relationship with comics. So. Yeah, you do a lot of really great and sort of writing with a little bit of a personal lens in Secret Identity Reader, which is certainly very inspirational for me and one of the things that I'm so grateful for about that book. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about that, but maybe let's talk get into it by talking about your comic scholarship and how that kind of started and, and kind of what your approach is. Because what really interests me about, like, again, you're, you're saying, you know, like a lot of people weren't teaching comics at that time because Secret Identity Reader came out in 2010, which, you know, I, re- you know, I remember finding that book and being like... That was at the point in time where I think I'd read all of the scholarship on comics because there just wasn't that much. I have not read all the scholarship on comics anymore. I can't keep up. But like, yeah, what brought you to kind of your your scholarly practice on comics? Like, what was sort of your motivation there? I think a couple of things. First of all, I know what you mean about the amount of scholarship on comics. And, and this was one of my motivations. I remember going to Mills Library in uh, McMaster University in Hamilton and looking for scholarly work on comics. And I think there was about maybe 10 books, not including yeah. the, the material in French, right? That There was far more over there, but just looking. And there was this little sort of small collection of books, um, including Canuck Heroes. And I just thought, wow, there's nothing here. And, you know, so when I started, when Richard and I became colleagues, we started at Melville at the same time, we identified ourselves as comic readers and started to talk. And those conversations invariably led us to do presentations in different places, um, often at Calgary Comic Cons. And we have been doing so many of those sort of conversations about a particular piece of, of comics that we were both kind of interested in that I think I looked at Richard at one point and I said, you know, we have enough here for a book. And we deliberately wanted to to put that book together as a series of conversations that um, where we would take very different perspectives. And one of those perspectives that I really wanted to foreground was what I thought was a gap in the literature and maybe uh, certainly way more out there now, but, but still a kind of grounded reading of superhero comics from a queer male, mm-hmm. you know, kind of cisgendered um, perspective. And I may use the word gay here from time to time only because I think at different points in thinking through my own identity, you know, I certainly, you know, sort of came to the word and the meanings of the word gay and, you know, foreground that 
particularly, I think, in the superhero secret identity reader. So just quickly, Lee, like I was thinking about that a lot when I was thinking about the questions for this episode. And I did want to ask you like about, you know, the difference in like, you know, how we think about a gay reading versus a queer reading, because I, I, I knew yeah. it would be something that you could speak to. So it was something that was on my mind. So I appreciate you bringing it up. Anyway, sorry. Sorry to jump yeah, in. Yeah, no, no, no. So, so first of all, there was a still, I think, as you said, Anna, there was still not a lot out there, even in, you know, towards the early 2000s, right? And then, as you said, I mean, you go to, I, I remember going to Bogart's library a while back and just looking at the amount of scholarship on comics. I mean, mm-hmm. it warmed my heart because I just couldn't believe that there had been this kind of expansion of the, the focus on comics and particularly, you know, with superhero comics in the mix. And, you know, even the idea of comic studies, right? Like even, you know, let's say 15 years ago, um, you know, it, it was still maybe more in the cultural studies realm, mm-hmm. maybe a bit over in English, literary studies. But, you know, the fact that we now can point to comic studies, I think, is a really important piece. And, um, you know, to have published around the time that that was coalescing. And then, as I say, I think the other piece is Richard and I were really wanting to dialogue around difference and to be able to show where we connect, but also where we differ and, and what are the productive possibilities in talking through difference. And I, th- I feel like that was a, a really important motivator for us in terms of modeling a kind of dialogic, not dialectic approach to things. Yeah, and I love in that book the way both of you talk a lot about masculinity in that book, but from very different perspectives, which I think is really valuable in terms of, you know, we still have the problem like in gender studies that it basically becomes women's studies and we're not talking about the complexity of masculinity as much as I would ideally like us to see. And yeah, that's just a really valuable book in terms of in terms of emphasizing that com- that complexity of masculinity because you know, the superhero genre is very masculinist. I mean, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> a provable yeah. fact. And Yet Mm -hmm. the conversations that you have in that book prove that that masculinity isn't simple. There are so many different ways of interacting and interpreting that masculinity. And the masculinity, in fact, changes in different eras and different styles of art and different moments of reception. And yeah, I think that that conversational approach that you take there is is really, really great. Just can't recommend that book enough. I I, I often go back to it. Thank you. One of the conversations that we have in, in there is... Richard's long essay about female superheroes. Mm-hmm. And I really wrote A Gay Man Reads His Comics in, in response to that. And really, yeah, it was really kind of one of those moments where we said, you know what, we really should talk about, you know, our perception around gender and sexuality. And so Richard had been working around some stuff there. And, and so um, I really wanted to explore, you know, that that gay male identity. And as you said, there, like, there is there's a difference between those two. And I'm happy to talk a bit more about that. Um, and in fact, maybe even when we get into Excalibur, right? So yeah. really, I think as I was looking at that, more things came. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about the the Colossus and Nightcrawler stuff in this issue a little bit. I mean, well, let me ask you the, the question about, about writing from the personal, because it's obviously a topic that interests me a lot. I do that a lot in my own work. But when you wrote that essay, A Gay Man Reads His Comics, which is a great essay, again, very inspirational for me in terms of some of the stuff that, that I do with gazes and comics and writing from the personal. But why was it important for you to write from the personal? Like, from your perspective, what is the value of bringing that personal lens into, into academic scholarship? You know, and, and we're some time away from that moment now, right, where um, I'm working a lot around decolonization and indigenization and, you know, the importance of, of positioning oneself in relation to the land, for example, you know, and, and what is your connection to this territory, you know, so really thinking a lot about that. And I, and I believe that's super important, too, uh, because I guess I guess I've been deeply influenced by many of my women colleagues feminists, you know, the personal is political. And, and I've always been drawn to the the power of autoethnography. So, you know, reflecting on how our own experiences are shaped by discursive forces that, you know, 
don't often give us a lot of choices until we're really cognizant of how those come to to shape us, both our experiences, our lives, and in the extent to which we can work with those and or change them. So I think the the personal has an important place, um, just on a theoretical level. But then also, I wanted to articulate this very specific subject position that I think I came to comics with, you know, certainly when I was an adolescent, right? You know, the, the fact was, is that I was reading those comics on, you know, on one level, but then also, you know, for the, the pleasure of being able to see male bodies on display, albeit often covered, you know, but those those um, idealized, uh, hyper-masculinized bodies. And, you know, when you're living in Sudbury in, in the 1970s and the only gay bar has been, you know, smashed to pieces it was, you know, you got to find your pleasures where you can, right? So uh, there, there was that, right? That there, there was a, a an easily available kind of space where one could have, you know, sort of same-sex affections, you know, desires, kind of somewhat, you know, validated, uh, you know, not not in any overt way, of course, but yeah, I, I think it, those were a kind of resource that um, were easily available and could be read queerly, could be, you know, read from a gay perspective. And, and I wanted to have that experience and that, you know, those pleasures put out there. And I think you can only, you know, I, I would say that oftentimes writing about the body, writing about the male body as a man, you know, can be a little can be a little fraught, right? I mean, it was interesting that Richard's other essay about his father and his father's body, I think, is is really a, a really interesting kind of take on on our relationship as men, as boys, to our father's body. And again, you know, we often get a lot in Freudian kind of psychoanalytic discourse about the relationship to the mother's body. But I think Richard's essay is really good on you know filling in a bit of a space there around relationships boys to fathers and their bodies. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, a couple of the things that, you know, I always think about from from your essay, uh, A Gay Man Reads His Comics, is, you know, you talk about really being invested in those moments of care between men, you know, the homosocial yeah. bonding stuff, but like those yeah. moments in which they did demonstrate sort of gentleness and, and powerful emotions for each other and caring for each other. And yeah, I mean, you talk about making gazes visible, and that really stood out to me at the time as somebody who was like you know this female feminist academic who was like there's so much in these comics they're full of beautiful men and men loving men and like all of this exciting stuff and then people just kept telling me no this genre is just misogynistic and sexist it doesn't have that and you know like making those gazes visible through you know an essay like you wrote is just so so like <laughs> I felt a deep like affection for it and a deep like identification for it even if if the two of us I think go in some different directions obviously you know like I'm a straight woman you're a gay man we're going to go in different directions with what we want to see but still like having having those desires validated was like super super valuable to me when i when i read that essay lee it was just it's a great oh, piece. Well, thank you thank you um you know but i think so the, that point really goes to what we're going to talk about in in excalibur right because you know this is about caring and what i wanted to talk a little bit about is how how caring has to be regulated between men right and and it's the you know and it was those moments, those tender moments in those comics that I was reading in the 1970s that I really, you know, connected to and, you know, for a whole host of, of personal reasons as well. But but really, you know, those those moments are so rare. You know, maybe more today. I, I think there's been some more openings, but back then, you know, there was a very constricted set of representations of of men caring about men, usually on the battlefield and war movies and that kind of thing. Yeah. All right, Dynasty might have been a bit of an exception, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do the issue summary and we'll come right back to, to talking about some of those things in conversation with this in issue in particular, because as you're saying, I think it's it's pretty relevant to a lot of what we have here. So 
I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. If we had the power to replenish your body's electrofire, we'd almost certainly do so. Just to prove how swell we are, here's an equally swell plot summary. Excalibur number 117 opens with Pufferfish Pete Wisdom acquiring temporary super strength that allows him to rescue Megan and Doglock from drowning. After Megan revives from being decked by the elements that nerfed her elemental powers that should allow her to control the elements, she uses those same elemental powers to jumpstart the offline Doglock. Doglock then uses his powers which were also mysteriously nerfed to locate Colossus and Kurt beneath the Venice Canal. Megan remembers how to talk to water and does so, parting the waves to reveal the Sidri ship. Inside, Colossus and Kurt are doing their best to stay alive as the murderous Sidri, now merged into a single Super Sidri, continue to seek revenge for Kitty and Kurt's years ago attempt to save them, which, as you'll recall, backfired by mutating the Sidri and making them outcasts. Kurt and Piotr use the power of friendly love to fend off the Sidri until their other friends arrive. The aliens are especially interested in Douglock tapping him and seemingly knocking him offline again. Our friends retaliate in the form of Megan's superheating Wisdom's hot knives, which he then hurls at the Sidri. Everything resolves rather anticlimactically as the Sidri pursue Excalibur to the surface only to call off the battle because the interface with Douglock allowed them to fix their mutations. Basically, as I understand it, they take components of Douglock's techno-organic ability to interface with collectives, meaning that they can return to their home collective and Douglock gets to feel like more of an individual, so it's a win-win. We conclude with Kitty Pride, former agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., arriving home at Muir Island. She's greeted enthusiastically by Lockheed, but when they head to Kitty's room, the dragon flees, seemingly terrified. Kitty asks her Banff doll for answers, then scoffs at what is clearly a ridiculous idea. The Banff doll isn't alive. Or is it? We'll deal with that next week for now. So Lee, as we were already getting into a little bit, like part of why I wanted to have you on this particular episode is that I wanted to talk about some of this Piotr and Kurt stuff, uh, which we already got into a little bit, but I won't. You don't have to take us there necessarily necessarily the floor is yours and it's open to talk about whatever first impressions you had of this issue what are you particularly eager to talk about i i guess i was drawn to kirk and piotr's relationship and how it got represented i i didn't you know i i one thing i didn't mention earlier about my little comics biography is i moved to calgary and i stopped collecting if it had not, you know, met up with Richard and um, I think I might never have come back to comics, but it was really meeting Richard and, you know, he really rekindled my interest in in comics. And uh, I, I've never really figured out exactly why I moved to Calgary and stopped collecting, but, you know, I'll, I guess I'll take that up with someone else um, in, in another space. But because strangely, when I moved back to Ontario for a couple of years, I started collecting again. So I don't know. Huh. Anyway, things to think about. But so Peter Wisdom was always a bit of a, unknown to me. I mean, I knew about him, but I really never really seen him. So I found him really interesting. I have always been, I know you had mentioned a little bit in um, talking about the pod about, about uh, uh, Doug Locke, who I have lots of thoughts about. You can't get queerer than Doug Locke, can you? No, I mean, like, you can't. I mean, there's a, there's I, so I, much I, queer potential with this character, which we are desperate oh to see explored. But Oh my God. Well, and you know, they <laughs> have not. to, you have to, and it has to be totally contained because he's all hot for rain, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, Wolfsbane is like, oh my God, okay, well, there we go. We're like, yeah, everybody pull out your uh, Eve Sedgwick and uh, reviews. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, that, there's, there's that going on. Yeah, I, I just, I guess, if we're going to focus in on uh, Nightcrawler and Colossus, what really struck me was even in 116, they are, the writers are very careful to shape and understand this close connection that's going to be on display and explored um, in, in 117 as one between brothers. Even though they've trained together, um, I have uh, this, um, they're more than fellow heroes, right? So that they're, but this has to be immediately framed within the familial bond of brothers. And remember that in 116, they also remind us of Mikhail, who went off to the stars and Piotr said, I would have followed him. Right? So they're already setting up this kind of connection that Colossus has with brothers, that they are someone that he will follow anywhere. And so when Kirk disappears and is lost, I mean, then of course he's 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 going to have this brotherly care. You know, he's going to mobilize the, the concept of brotherhood. So, but it's interesting that in some ways that this connection can be expressed perhaps only through the bronze of fraternity, 
right? Brotherhood. That this is a way for a wide range of affective bonds to be expressed. So comradeship, um, there's a familial bond there. These are brothers in arms. And as I was writing that out, I was thinking, I think that's an expression that's queer in and of itself, right? Because yeah. we always think of it as brothers in arms as in they have their arms, but what about brothers in arms, right? Like what, um, the tenderness, the, the caring that is also in, implied in that term. And, you know, it, 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 there's all this brotherly love that's floating around and I you know, sort of riffing a bit, and I was thinking about the movie Philadelphia, you know, and the city of brotherly love, and of course, Philadelphia as one of those first mainstream AIDS movies. You know, it's it's a reminder that brotherly love has lots of, of levels to it, right? And I think it's that that really struck me. So why why this consistent, consistent sort of, you know, this is nothing more than brothers. We're caring about each other, right? And it's it's a way that it allows for a, a, a range of powerful emotions that Piotr has, right? He's worried, he's anxious, he's fearing the loss of, of this friend, this brother. He cares deeply, right? But it's... It can then be positioned as something that is normal for brothers, not, God forbid, special friends. Um, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> unique um, friends, unique friends. Unique friends, special friends, you know, can't be any of that, right? So it, it's sort of interesting that that the script itself, and if we go to Bard and we think about, you know, how the text anchors images, that it's very much the case that the writers I think, are are trying to ensure that we're going to read this in the right way. And I think the year this is published is actually pretty important, right? This is 1998. You know, we got to cast our mind back to 1998, right? We're in don't ask, don't tell mode in the United yep. States. We're here in Canada, you know, the big the big sort of political triumphs, as it were, is around same-sex benefits. It's, you know, it's better representation of, or uh, not necessarily wider representation in mainstream media, but thinking here of Roseanne Barr and um, thinking of some of the Ellen in her first incarnation, right? But even that's like, really, like just thinking of 1998 and how important it would be to anchor those meetings within a heteronormative kind of sensibility, right? So that there's nothing queer going on here until you get to, um, you know, the actual sort of uh, showdown with the Sidri, right? Over, I guess, sort of pages eight and nine, I think it's uh, where, where we start to see them. And we get a lot of conversations about how their connection and about how they've trained together. I'm just trying to get to the to the right page here, but you know, there's that great sort of pa- three panels layout there, right, where they're drawing on their training to yeah. you know defeat, and then it's sort of you look at that and you, you put your queer lens on that one, and you know, it's like all that work, all that that dialogue and exegesis is is really being deployed specifically to make certain that you know we we don't think of of this as being anything anything but so you know we have uh now as we practice block parry thrust and then mm-hmm. and then you know we get the sidri with its great sort of beam exploding and uh all piotr can say is woof um you know so you know it's, it's sort of there again you know i think it can't be helped in some ways that this it's a homoerotic to be sure, you know, queer desire can't help, I think, but be represented when these motion, these, these really powerful emotions are coming into play, right? So you notice that he said, I'm sorry you came all this way to die. Well, what else are friends for? Right, yeah. um, it's sex um, and death, baby. Yeah, not dying. Well, not dying. Yes, I, I, I like my friends <laughs> to not die. It's just, I mean, not, I know everybody doesn't feel that way. It's just one of my things. <laughs> so anyway, I, so I, I mean, you asked me a couple things, like just like what struck me, and so I really focused in on the brother metaphor, right, and trying to think through how it, it becomes a kind of it's a positive thing in the sense that it allows for these men to express their care for each other and their their bond right and at the same time cast it within a kind of a safe way of talking about that connection so you know they're they're more than fellow heroes on a common quest to improve their station of life they're you know they're great friends but they're brothers and all of these 
emotions that are a play and being represented can be could be understood as as examples of how camaraderie how brothers uh, can be counted on to to act well yeah i definitely want to unpack how the art because you started to get into it a little bit with that three panel sequence but like how the art is interacting with the text here too because that is where i think to me like there's a gayness to this but like a, specifically a queerness in terms of in terms of some of what's going on with the art and the alien bodies and the exaggerations here but um let me pick up some first impressions from from mav and andrew uh, and we'll get into it a little bit more or if you just want to respond we can just get right into this conversation rather than calling this first impressions but i'll kind to you first mav like yes. did, did did this stuff stand out to you in this issue or or <laughs> it was stand it just out. me and lee no no them? no um i i want to caveat this and um just call on one particular scholar lee referenced very early on very briefly and you sort of like even glanced over at you you re you referenced uh cedric eve cedric and the idea so for those who don't know among other things cedric was very very big on the idea of reparative readings something that we are no you know no stranger to on this show i feel as though this particular issue is ripe for that because oh, yeah. i don't think there's a lot here now i'm saying this in a very particular way because i don't think there's a lot here and usually when i say that it's negative i don't hate this issue i actually think it's fine just nothing happens its weak point is the story <laughs> there's a lot of details that go into it where you're like that's interesting and lee just did a great job of talking about like all of the very very interesting queer but questionable stuff that is done question i should say not questionable not negative questionably queer you know vaguely i guess uh i guess plausibly deniable queerness that uh nightcrawler and colossus have through this issue and what makes me interested in that is because a lot of times in my in my work i i, I deal a lot with the ways in which what is commonly called homosociality is used between nominally nominally straight characters in a very gay sense which is sort of necessary in the superhero genre because of how inherently queer it is to have half naked men tumbling around with each other that is a gay quote activity but you want it to be very masculine and very heteronormative so there's a lot of weird coding and counter coding that goes on and i usually i, I usually pull on loose irigori when i'm doing that and i think that's necessary here because um i would argue and i'll wait till andrew's talked to do it I would argue that much of the queerness of this is offset purely by the presence of Megan, who is there to remind everybody that everyone is straight. <laughs> that is that is Megan's point in this kind of this point in this. Megan's in, in this, the, the function of Megan in this story is boobs. Boobs. <laughs> yeah. Boobs. They're here. It's like it, it's like if every if if everything if anything ever feels too gay, here's Megan's boobs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now you can feel all manly again. And that's what the story and that's what the story is for me and i actually think it's fascinating because because i went through looking and it happens very intentionally very often it's like it's a lot of oh we are brothers in arms comrades in arms titties <laughs> <laughs> i totally agree with you on that and you know it, it is you know often the function of you know and particularly i want to go back to you know sort of the period where we're looking at the women characters are there to secure the hetero mm -hmm. masculinity of, yes. of the heroes right so that they can say i share the most unique bond with it that any two billions possibly could share literally it's a mm -hmm. there and and yet at the same time it's entirely secured by as you say megan and her breasts, because as long as she's there, we're all good, right? And I, I can talk about, you know, I mean, there's lots of places, uh, homosocial. I, I really appreciate you introducing the homosocial aspect into into the conversation, because if nothing else, comics, and I think until the arrival of, of women readers on in a greater number, it's what we see now, you know, this was uh, an entirely homosocial sort of space and place. Right, to, to be able to to be a man, but carefully circumscribed, right, by presence of, of female characters, at least. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I just wanted to say I totally see what you're saying. 
Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I want to pick up Andrew's thoughts because I like I will. I mean, you know, cards on the table. The entire reason I remember this issue is because of the Piotr and Kurt stuff. And it is entirely because my reaction to reading this for the first time was like, I had never previously shipped these characters, but suddenly I'm all in, you know, <laughs> this this hooked me. I was like, sure, I'm, I'm in this like romance between these characters is uh, pretty sexy in this issue. And it is what I recall. So, I mean, I, I was wondering about your perspective as somebody who's obviously like looked at the bonds between those characters before like I mean again it wasn't a relationship that I had really thought of in that way because you know there are certain relationships that are so much more shippable than others you know Kurt and Logan being you know the one that is the most popular from that era of X-Men comics I don't really think about Kurt and Piotr in that way so much but I don't know what was your kind of reaction to reading this issue like were you seeing some of the same stuff that we were seeing definitely I think so I what I would say though and maybe this is different than your reading of it um I, I think that there's a point in time where you have to evaluate the quality of the queer coding and whether or not yeah. it is a rich narrative that they're setting up with all these relationships. And I don't. Oh well, yeah, that's think a great point. Great. I mean, when we when we talk about. <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, when we talk about, you know, the queer coding in Claremont, which is like intentional queer coding versus like the potential for queer coding in a comic right. like this, which I don't think it's intentional. I do think that that's sometimes we get lost in our reparative readings and lose track of that. But like, anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. because I think no, 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 it's no, really no, no. important. So, so, so all I would say, because I agree, it, it is... I'm pretty sure unintentional, um, but it's there. Like it's screamingly there. I, I think even if you step it down a notch and you read it literally in terms of what Rob's intending, like it's just somebody shows up and says, we have a really strong bond and no one can defeat us as opposed to exploring that bond, as opposed to yeah. adding detail and nuance and specificity to that bond. Like what I would compare it to, you mentioned the the sort of um, um, Kurt Logan relationship, which is awesome, but also like um, um, the Professor X Magneto relationship yeah. and the different sort of layers of like respect and ideology and history that informed that relationship. For me, this one was a little bit forced in that regard. Um, so so it, it kind of fell flat on both fronts, the sort of um, in unintentionally queer-coded front and the literal band of brothers thing that they're trying to go for uh, again just because it was a little too on the surface i think oh yeah there's so much like kurt and colossus telling us that they have this unique bond and i'm like well actually these are two <laughs> characters that have had a lot of conflict in the past and i'm not sure if i believe that kurt respects piotr in this way but i, I mean, do so yeah. reparative I mean, kurt, is, kurt is like that so i mean i don't you, you, kurt is like that but okay so very important things um, from their history i think on the show where we discussed it i talked about my very favorite moment between kurt and P piotr ever is when piotr shows up and beats the crap out of wisdom and kurt puts him in the jail and says yeah i i consider you a child you know <laughs> like you know, like kurt just dresses yeah. him down right like i actually love that because what came out of that was not Kurt makes it very clear that he's not <laughs> in a very parent parenting way. He's not mad. He's disappointed. You know, yeah. <laughs> like there, yeah. there's a and and I and I think what makes their relationship work, and I think part of this is intentional on Rob's um, part, and part of it's maybe underserved a little bit. Is Anna? I believe you said the the more popular shipping would be Kurt and Logan. Sure, but also Logan and, and Piotr is more popular. They had a relationship that's closer. And if you think back, and Andrew, I, I think you'll probably back this up, most of their Claremont-run interactions on a social level, you had Logan there as a buffer. So what you end up with is you end up with what, this is the thing that happens in polyamorous narratives a lot. You'll have a not true triad, you'll have a wedge relationship where there are two metamors and there's a single person they're both dating and in the middle and when that missing you know focal point is like gone and then the two side you know the, the two side characters who only relate through their central romantic relationship are forced to deal with each other you end up with interesting stories of how do we relate here it doesn't have to be romantic because it wasn't until recently but the this, is, this has always been the case with trying to deal with how do Logan and Scott relate to each other when Gene's gone right like there's a like there's a there's a jealousy of each other but once they get past the jealousy and they're the entire time when she's dead and they're just like how do we both honor this woman we love right there's this how do we have a relationship without our without our mutual bond and i think that's what's going on here with kurt and and piotr 
just not well. <laughs> I mean, like, like, or, but I, but I don't think it's awful either. I think it's, I, I think that it's sort of jumping to a resolution spot without largely having done all the work, but that's not yeah. Rob's fault. Cause, cause Colossus has right. been around for a while and we've been through 18 different writers. It's so condensed and it's so chaotic that they should have a relationship like this. We just haven't had gotten to see enough of it. Yeah. I mean, I'll give my little take on it just like a little bit because I, I do want to talk about the art here because I think that that's like sort of a crucial aspect of it i mean to me it was sort of like when someone does an odd pairing in fanfic and maybe i'm not initially there for it i'm like oh that's as they say an odd pairing and yet somebody <laughs> writes it so sexy that you're like okay you know like i'm i'm, I'm here for mm-hmm. it because it's i i totally agree that the narrative setup isn't here like this was supposed to be a thing about pete wisdom rescuing kurt and then we dropped that and now it's colossus so it doesn't really make sense narratively like it should be about the bond between pete and kurt if anything because that's how Kurt got captured to begin with. But anyway, it doesn't matter. But when I think about the art here and how it relates to so much of that productiveness that excess can have, and when I say productiveness, it doesn't necessarily mean that the excess is like quote unquote good stylistically or like that it makes quote unquote sense. But when I think about an image like, you know, early in the comic where we have that mostly splash page of Colossus with his head dunked in the water or whatever that is, like reaching up to 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 grasp the, the techno-organ looking machinery there with the really vaguely defined body of the Sidri behind him and his fingers splayed towards us the reader and you think about the abstractness of the body in an image like that which parts of the body are which parts of the body in terms of the Sidri because we don't know their physiognomy is like completely alien we couldn't figure it out when we were talking to Josh in the last episode but also that idea that different parts of the male body are like standing in and like being phallic representation I mean we've talked before on the podcast about arms of supplementary penises and even an image like this like all five of his erect fingers as he's like being (laughs) like dunked in like the dampness beneath this alien body and there's so many images like that throughout this issue i mean you can't tell where kurt's body begins and ends with colossus's body with the bodies of the sidri and in something like that sequence that that leah already mentioned you know the block parry thrust sequence it's like who's thrusting what into what at what angle and what's actually happening when bodies explode and merge because what actually happens in this sequence is that this sort of like laser thing comes out from the sidri and like <laughs> <laughs> knocks Colossus backwards into a state of pain or ecstasy unclear and then the Sidri break apart with this splorch sound effect so we are literally <laughs> having like which isn't quite sploosh but it's close <laughs> like just like I mean the amount of bodies sort of merging and changing and interacting here is one of the things that tends to excite me about this kind of imagery because it's not just that there's a gayness here but that there's a queerness here in terms terms of Mm -hmm. you know bodies interacting in ways that are not heterosexual they're not heteronormative they're not you know even necessarily like linked to essential ideas of gender like these bodies can be very interestingly gendered in a lot of these images and that is always the kind of stuff that excites me personally about super sex you know the, the the multiplicity of interpretations that we end up with where you get this narrative that is so heavy on the emotions and the love between these two male characters and yet denying that and yet the art is doing something else and this confusion of elements leads to a lot of you know potential productiveness that you know gets my brain firing and even if that stuff is accidental and sometimes even because it's accidental that can be what makes it so exciting to you as a reader Mm -hmm. and it's it's some of what I struggle with in terms of on occasion when we have sort of more direct and explicit representation, you know, of gay relationships, of queer relationships, of lesbian relationships, for me, sometimes we lose some of this sort of like excessive productive queerness where it could have meant so many different things. And I really struggle with that because I don't know what I want some of the time because the the excitingness about the queerness does like get located in reading against the intention sometimes right like that's mm. that's the rebelliousness of doing a reparative reading on a comic like this and yeah I like again I just I struggle with that with myself sort of as a fan and a scholar because I'm clearly like responding to a comic like this in terms of mm, it's sexy in part because I know I'm reading it wrong and like that's like what's right. fun about it well yeah well I think there you're talking about you know the pleasure 
that comes from reading against the grain, right? Exactly. Transgressive readings, right? And, you know, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, this kind of representation that you're drawing attention to, you know, gives us permission to be able to do that. I, I was struck as well by the way which those bodies are so uh, in, enmeshed. And I, and I guess I'm choosing that word quite deliberately because yeah. great word it's not quite on. Yeah. I well, mean, everything and, is wet in addition to like being sort yeah. of like merged it, and totally. joined and entwined by these very dark inks, right? Yeah. And, and I think, I, first of all, I want to say that the, the idea of reparative readings, Cedric's notion of reparative readings has been something that my colleague Kelly Houston and I um, have have explored. It's not, not in depth, but um, certainly the last time I taught comics, I actually wanted to move to reparative reading as opposed to more critically, solely critical, you know, paranoid readings as, as um, Cedric talks about them. I, I think, I, and maybe I could just use this as a jumping off point, Hannah. So for me, I think I would say this is queer access, right? And it's because it's not easily defined. It's it's sort of amorphous. It's it's not you know necessarily. It's quite fluid. It's it's you know many of the things that we attribute to queerness. I've been doing in a kind of less reparative moment is is focusing on you know the things that are suppressed, right? You know the things that are policed and regulated, which which produce a kind of critique of heteronormativity, but at the same time sort of posit a space for same-sex affection, right? And I think one of the challenges, if I can just loop back to the homosocial, one of the challenges of the homosocial is that there are all these emotions that are at play. And at the same time, you know, I, I, I was trying to maybe get towards that in the positive way that it's not, although it's somewhat contained and maybe uh, normalized in, in a sense, but it, it also allows for all this expression of, of different kinds of, of same sex same same gender emotions affects so I, I guess I would focus more on the positive side of that as opposed to only the regulative side uh, the regulatory side you know which which I think if we're following you know Sedgwick's thinking around reparative readings she wants us to look for other ways of seeing um, repair at work and you know going back to our earlier co- part of the conversation here this is kind of reparative Right. This is perhaps given some of the history that we talk about these two characters having that that maybe the this is a moment where they are repairing a bit of some of those moments of distance that have characterized the relationship in the past and that it's really an affirmation of them as as having this particular kind of bond. I, I know you wanted to talk more about the art. I, I just was again reminded late nineteen nineties image, you know, the the hyper hyper sexualized, hyper masculine bodies and big muscles and you know that whole uh sort of focus on on big muscles that characterize the, the late nineties. I thought that was at play here too. But as you say there's lots of there's it's the excess that we can turn to and, and find other pleasures. I think that's what I heard you talking about. Right? Um, the queer pleasures that are are not going to be one thing or another, but they're going to be kind of derived from the possibilities that are made apparent simply by you know, the lack of definition, the merging and um, so forth that you you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I just. <laughs> It's like you almost quoted the line just as you were talking. I just have to note because I don't think we noted it yet. The exchange between Kurt and Colossus when they're like, let's take down this villain old school X-Men style. And then Colossus is like, it would be a pleasure. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love like yes, yes. old school X-Men style, which is like, oh, so you mean queerly and it would oh. be a pleasure. <laughs> oh, but not just any kind of pleasure. This would be mm. a huge pleasure as the mm-hmm. letter, as the um, letter it's clear, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. <laughs> a lot of emphasis on that particular phrase. We get it in like and, bold red yeah. and yellow, exceeding the boundaries of the speech bubble. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Amazing. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I want to move to some to some final thoughts, actually, because I know we're running long, but we'll, everybody can have a chance to, to circle back to something. But I guess I did want to clarify that like when I talk about being dissatisfied with some more explicit portrayals in contemporary comics i am thinking of stuff like i often am very frustrated with in particular the marvel pride specials because while it's great to have explicit representation so many of the stories on those specials tend to be very and like we've we've talked about this on the 
pod before, but very homonormative in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, here's one very generically attractive, you know, (laughs) gay person and another very generically attractive (laughs) gay person going on a very monogamous date with the only person that they've ever dated because God forbid we should have any of the gay characters interacting with any of the straight characters. And it feels less queer than something like this sometimes because, you know, that excess isn't there. It's sort of very not only confined to the pride special but like the emphasis on monogamous dating and like marriage in those specials is really really heavy and yeah it's just that's sort of what i'm thinking about when i when i talk about frustration because i definitely want more explicit representation but it's just we don't seem to be able to have both as much as i would like no and and certainly i think i talked about this somewhere else but you know that you may all remember Steve Orlando's Rama Midnighter back mm-hmm. about five years ago, right? Where mm-hmm. he is sort of taking up a much more sort of different stance towards uh, sex, but totally, you know, dis- disavowed by the end when he's back with Apollo, right? And they're yeah. back together. And, and, you know, so all that other kind of representation gets, well, that was just, you know, on my world back to, you know, true love with Apollo. And, uh, you know, that I've, I found that one again to what you're saying. Like there's only so much variance that is that can be allowed. So I, I think that's that frustration might be endemic to the genre, at least I in mainstream. Say, in the mainstream, in the mainstream. Yeah, world. yeah. I mean, I will say that Orlando also wrote a really great Midnighter story in one of the DC Pride specials, though that like kind oh. of ends with a suggested three way involving John Constantine and oh yeah, oh, what's that? <laughs> And somebody else, I can't remember the other character, but also it had like a really great plot in which they were stopping a homophobic vampire from literally erasing <laughs> queer history. And it was mm-hmm. kind of amazing because <laughs> it was like so like doing the thing where you're using metaphor to make the thing explicit, but so over the top that it was glorious. So I, right. I got to give the shout out to that. <laughs> okay, cool. I'll have to go look for that I'm, I'm hit or, I'm hit or miss with, with, some of, with some of Steve's comics, but that particular story I'll, I'll go to bat for. But yeah, I totally take your critique of the Midnighter and Apollo series, which I had mixed feelings about as well for many of the reasons that you that you said. Um, let's go to some final thoughts. Give everybody a chance to either either continue this conversation a little bit or circle back to something. We didn't talk about most of the other characters in this comic, so if you want to talk about them, this is the time. I'll come to you first, Andrew. Anything you would like to bring up or circle back to that we haven't had enough of a chance to talk about? Uh, yeah, in that vein, I think um, one of the things I kind of liked about this issue, and it, it got abandoned, as somebody mentioned earlier the framing of pete wisdom as this man silently seeking amends Mm -hmm. for the people he's hurt i thought that was actually pretty interesting and i I thought that was maybe rob's best writing of pete wisdom that we've seen so far so i enjoyed that oh in support of pete wisdom this week andrew i wasn't expecting that but i appreciate (laughs) it (laughs) mav anything you would like to circle back to yep couple of things uh so well i agree with andrew on pete wisdom but i think the flaw is i don't think rob likes pete wisdom anymore than we do i I don't think he wants him here and he's just this issue really wants to give pete stuff to do he is the least powerful member on this mission and he is the only one who can like he is saving two people who don't need to breathe from from drowning that's (laughs) weird a a robot man and a lady who can turn into a fish are being (laughs) are being saved from drowning so it's just it's odd right yeah I, i want to talk a little bit about um about the weird counter queerness of it we, we talked about doug Locke, and i think this is where where rob's run falls apart because doug Locke's story in this issue i mean why is he here what is he for doug lock you said has the potential to be a very interesting queer character or really two queer characters because you could do the story of cypher and warlock a thing that has done better in you know every other run than this one so like <laughs> i mean i don't mean i don't mean rob I mean, just the Douglock concept in Excalibur just is broken over what Warlock and Doug can be, especially if you want to throw rain into it. So I, I think there's a potential to do something interesting with these characters, but never really grabbed. And it's even more removed in this issue because, oh, look, Rain's back, but she's trapped in a closet with her mom. And we don't even need to mention her in the recap, really. Like she she's irrelevant to the story and Doug Locke's unconscious for the entire story, despite the fact that he's a robot man. Why is he unconscious? Like literally everything about Doug is (laughs) like sort of not just nerfed 
but like sort of removed from the story in order to deal with the more interesting story of Kurt and Colossus and Megan's boobs. Um, because that's what's really going on here. Like, Holy like, and Trinity. He donates his modem. Well, yeah. I, again, I... I, I so I, I hinted at this earlier. I do think Megan's boobs are important to the story. I think that what she's doing is she's reminding you that it's okay to be into this um, this boy boy love story because you're still you know it's not gay if it's in a three way is it's yeah. an actual concept of you know the way we do weird queer sexuality. That's kind of what the homosexuality thing that Iragarai does is you know you can you can sort of have the escape clause of pretending this is still hyper masculine and manly because you know literally every third or fourth page we get Megan's boobs and that allows us to like sort of digest the you know the homosocial or homosexual story between Nightcrawler and Colossus without feeling too weird about it that feels more interesting to me and it's sort of a shame because a lot of stuff happens in this issue with very little story progression like I said at the beginning also Kitty shows up at the end in an outfit that she's never worn before including <laughs> in the limited series and will never wear it use again that was random that was random it I'm glad you I have to. <laughs> I thought it was Lelandra showing up. I had to go back. I know. Yeah, same. It's yeah. Like, what? How? Where did this come from? Then I realized oh, it must be Kitty because all of these are. Yeah. Anyway, it was it's like, random. Ooh, it's very... and she does not dress like that in the limited series that she's come from. I went back and checked. This is not a. Oh. This is not a thing that she wears in Kitty Pride Agent of Shield. It's just right. It's just for these two pages. <laughs> I guess she just felt. Oh no! I was just gonna say. I guess she just felt like dressing up. Yeah, yeah. To show up anyway, yeah. for the plane yeah. ride. You know how back in the day you used to get dressed up for a plane ride. This is her dressing up for a plane ride. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. I've done that. Respect it. <laughs> First time I went to Prague, showed up in hot pink tights, mini dress, and a fur coat, and I was very uncomfortable Ooh. on that flight, but it was freaking work worth it. I was like, I'm swinging in <laughs> to Prague, looking like Edie Sedgwick or nothing. And when you it, no regrets. When you you fly to visit Adam, please wear your, you know, steel um, armor <laughs> outfit like this for when you when you fly when you Amazing. fly to America for Thanksgiving. Please do. Amazing. Yeah. We'll see. I'll update you. My thought was going to be on the cover just briefly because it relates directly to what you were saying, Mav. You know, we have the very like, I mean, Colossus is always going to have a bit of a Tom of Finland quality about him, but you know, his body like displayed <laughs> here on the cover. We get Kurt hanging upside down from his tail in a really Cassidy's mm. uh, is a fun artist, but I do not know how he is hanging from that protrusion of the Sidri. And then we have mm -hmm. Megan and her boobs at the bottom of the image, <laughs> just, to, just to ground us, as it were, quite literally. Um, but I'll come back to you, Lee, for, for a final thought to wrap up this convo. Anything you would like to circle back to or bring up that we didn't get a chance enough to talk about? No, I, I just uh, really appreciate um, that point about Doug Locke and, and the the so much potential there. And even, mm -hmm. even the little bit of queerness is at the very end, right? He's given up a little bit more of origins as if to make him even more normal or on the path to to assimilation, right? I just I, I just feel like like people never really wanted to explore some of some of the that relationship in, in the the many different queer ways that it, it could go because of some of the strictures. So I, I think Doug Lock probably was done a disservice here. I think, you know, why was he here? I mean, you know, except for, you know, some sort of last minute uh, role in terms of saving, you know, the Sidri and uh, letting them return, I guess, back home. But no, for me, I, I, I just want to say that I really just appreciated this opportunity to, to talk with the three of you about um, something that I, you know, just love talking about. And thank you so much for the opportunity to, uh, to be a part of the pod. Appreciate that. It means a lot to us too. We're coming to the end of our three-year journey. So we're trying to go out with a bang. Yeah. You, you've certainly helped us do that, Lee. So thank you. So the final thing I'm going to do is just to spotlight a letter from the Sword Strokes Letters column, as we like to do. This is from Kay Renshaw, and part of the letter reads, I'd like to thank you for finally giving the most mysterious member of Excalibur a chance to prove that he's just as intelligent as Kitty thinks he is. I hope Lockheed starts talking, at least to Kitty, soon. Will you be revealing why Lockheed talked all recently? My personal theory is that he's waiting till Kitty learns to speak Dragon first. I completely thought the editorial response would sidestep this to keep it mysterious. I was wrong they say as for your Lockheed speaking theory he is an alien with a mouth very different from a human so it sounds pretty reasonable that it's taken him a while to learn English and teach himself how to form the words with that odd beak thing he's got for a mouth and you've got to admit it is pretty funny that he's 
been making Pete Wisdom look like a fool since he's been speaking only to him. So here we have the editor confirming Lockheed can fuck. It's just been been like mm -hmm. a physical reason why he can't. And I'm like, oh, why would you introduce that? That's wild. Yeah. That's a headcanon no for me. Yeah. There is... Well, yeah, I mean, you you, you prefer Lock- Lockheed to be the dog. I, I get it. But also, there's another there's another line of, of I think it's in Kitty Pride and Wolverine, where Lockheed has a, you know, he has an alien translator on so that he can be, no, not Kitty Pride and Wolverine. It's in uh, Wolverine and the X-Men or whatever it's called. It, the, the, when Wolverine's in charge of the school, Lockheed is a teacher and he has a thing around his neck so that he can, he can universally translate. And so he's, oh, he's just, he's just straight up intelligent in it. And he talks and like, he's a teacher at the school. It's a choice (laughs) Um, that was made. (laughs) And, um, and I never, like, I, I'm in between where Andrew is and where the editor here is. I I don't want Lockheed to be completely unintelligent. He's not, you know, he's not a pet, but I also think it sort of ruins something when he's communicating too easily. Like he's, he should be, be, he should be below Chewbacca on that scale for me. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I like there to be some mystery involving who Lockheed is, you know, that there's an alienness to him that he's clearly smart and intelligent, but speaking English kind of just ruins that and raises questions that I don't, think are fun questions they're just right problematic <laughs> questions that, you know come on come on staying there's a meeting of the round table oh. <gasps> no i can't So we will wrap things up there other than to say, Lee, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. I'm so glad we could reconnect with such a fab convo about this comic. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you. If you would like folks to find you online, where should they look for you and remind people of what past, present or future things they should be looking out for. Um, You can be looking for me at L Easton at MT Royal. Uh, That's my email address. Easiest to find me. And um, I have been doing some work on, on um, online uh, Reddit communities that um, focus on the male anatomy. I've been so, um, yeah, look for, we have something coming out in porn studies soon. So. Oh, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, Lee. I will be looking out for that, definitely. <laughs> and yeah, just, yeah. just thanks. So, I thanks found it way spend. creepier than you meant it to, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it's so way creepier. Listen, <laughs> I am the kind of lustful person who who lusts after articles about pornography more than I lust after actually watching pornography. That's the kind of freak that I am. But um, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much again, Lee. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. So next, too late for Halloween and too early for New Year's, we'll be digging into the Dark Knight of the Bamps and Excalibur number 118, New Year's Evil. And we have such an awesome combo in store, all about histories of toys and toy scholarship and evil toys in particular. It's going to be great. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fab YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials. You can find those via our website or the Vox Podcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur, reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via x slash twitter and blue sky at gosh golly wow where we post daily pages for whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you mav and andrew for another wet and wild convo thank you lee for bonding uniquely with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for our music for our truly epic theme song play us out <laughs> <laughs>